a warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty before God, or mighty through God, or mighty in the presence of God, to the casting down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The first letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life eternal, whereunto thou wast called. And lastly, the second um, letter of Paul to Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ so we bow together in a word of prayer Lord we have already entered into your presence and we have Lord worshipped you praised you and now, Lord, very simply, we want to take that anointing which is ours for the speaking and for the hearing, that you, Lord, yourself may be able to reach us with your word and deposit something in our hearts. Save us from our own, my own speaking and our own hearing, Lord. But so be with us and upon us that we shall know that ministry of your spirit that will help us, Lord, not only to hear your word, but to be doers of it. Lord, we commit ourselves to you with thanksgiving in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, as you've already heard, we have been talking about this whole matter of spiritual warfare or prayer warfare. And we began last night to deal with this subject, and I really don't want to go back over what we have already shared. Um, I believe it's on tape, and I imagine that you're able to get that uh, uh, tape, because each of these times, in one sense, I hope, by the grace of God, we'll be able to take a step forward. But I will say something about the world situation, looking at it from another uh, angle almost. We are born as believers into a battle. And the first thing we have to realize as a child of God is that the conflict and the battle that we're in is much bigger than us. It is not something that is peculiar to us or to our circumstances, but something that you and I have been born into because the Word of God tells us that this world lies in the evil one. And we cannot be delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son without some turmoil and upheaval somewhere. 
and uh, we cannot meet together and share our uh, faith and life in him, our salvation that is from him together without there being some kind of antagonism or some kind of opposition in the very atmosphere. We're born into a battle. And it's a very good thing for us to very early on understand that we are absolutely safe and absolutely secure in this battle, providing we use what the Lord has given to us. If we will only learn to put the whole armor of God on, and if we will only learn to um, uh, take the weapons of our warfare which are given to us, if we will only allow the Lord to discipline us and to um, harden us in a right way and to train us up, then we have absolutely nothing to fear in this battle. Because this battle is truly the Lord's battle. And if it is the Lord's battle, then the end is absolutely secure. The question is whether you and I are going to be in that victory or not. And um, that is the big question, the million dollar question. Um, now, we in particular, in this generation, are privileged beyond, I think, any other generation in church history to be living in a time for, over which patriarchs and prophets and kings and apostles have longed to see. They, it has been this time in which we are actually seeing before our very eyes the physical, literal fulfillment of God's a prophetic word. We are living on the very threshold of the coming of the Messiah. Uh, the patriarchs, the prophets, the kings, the, the apostles have all longed to see this day, but they have died in faith, not actually receiving the promise. That is, not seeing it uh, beginning to be fulfilled. It is an enormous privilege that is yours and ours, not something to be fearful about, but something to praise the Lord uh, for. But at the same time, this privilege brings with it a solemn responsibility. Because our Lord Jesus warned us not once, but again and again and again, that the last phase of world history would be fraught with particular and peculiar problems and difficulties. For instance, he told us there would be all kinds of false prophecies. There would be all kinds of false prophets. There would be all kinds of movements, cultic, um, mixed, that is partly really truly Christian and partly mixed, and utterly counterfeit, that would um, uh, say that they represent the Lord Jesus. They are the Christ. They are... Uh, representing his word, his truth, and so on. All of these things we are beginning to actually see before our eyes. And therefore, it is um, of tremendous importance that you and I should learn how to war, as it's put in the book of Numbers, war the warfare of the service. How we can really 
um, fight this good fight of faith and lay hold on the life eternal to which we are called, not only personally, but corporately. In these last days, everything is ripening. The tares are ripening, the wheat is ripening. Everything is moving to its determined end. The harvest of evil and the harvest of good. It is all apparent. And there are all kinds of things that have to be fulfilled um, in our day and generation. Um, if it, however small a number it is, God has to finally complete his purpose concerning the body of the Lord Jesus. Building us up, uh, bringing us in days of turmoil and error and confusion and even weakness, at least to a place where we are overcoming by his power and, and grace. And that requires spiritual warfare. It will not take place unless there are those who are true intercessors, those who can travel, as it were, in the travail of God's Spirit to bring about such a fulfillment of God's purpose. There is a gospel of the kingdom which is to be preached in all the world for a testimony to all nations before the end comes. Therefore we must expect that the powers of darkness will do every single thing in their power to frustrate that preaching of the gospel of the kingdom in all the world. Those powers of darkness will seek in one way or another utterly to destroy any possibility in some areas of the world of that gospel of the kingdom being preached. Therefore, you and I have got to learn how to war the warfare of the service so that that purpose of God revealed by the Lord Jesus can be fulfilled. We know that there are so many other areas that I could talk about um, uh, that also need um, the fulfillment of uh, God's uh, purpose and word. And the, this fulfillment will not come unless you and I learn how to uh, be involved in uh, prayer warfare. I do not have any doubt that a company such as this, meeting in the simplicity with which you meet, will be unable to stay together unless there are those who can war the warfare of the service and win a way through for men and women to grow up in the Lord, for division to be put aside, factions to be destroyed, Middle walls of petition removed through the finished work of the Lord Jesus, kept removed, not allowed to be built up. It requires spiritual warfare. If the ch your children are really going to come into a real experience of the Lord, not second-hand Christianity, but original, direct relationship of the Lord Jesus, and grow up in a world that will become increasingly pagan and demonized. To be those who know the Lord and are witnesses to the Lord, it will require people who can war the warfare of the service on their behalf. 
I could go on and go on and could go, could go on. But the fact of the matter is, here we are in an unbelievable situation. We have seen, for instance, in this last year, the most sudden and unexpected events take place in this world. Nobody could have realized a year ago, and nobody did realize a year ago, that these events were so near to being fulfilled and that suddenly whole areas of the world would begin to take on a different complexion. I think of what has happened in Eastern Europe. For some 45, 50 years, that whole area has been in the grip of a monolithic demonic power that has murdered millions, literally in its history of 72 years, millions of people, committed them to incarceration, to concentration camps, to forced labor camps, to mental institutions, banned the preaching of the gospel, destroyed all Christian work, not allowed Bibles to be printed, at least in contemporary language, and a thousand and one other things. And then, literally within this, this last year, something happened in Eastern Europe that has confused many believers. It began in Poland, spread from Poland to Hungary, from Hungary to Bulgaria, and then from Bulgaria to East Germany, and from East Germany to Czechoslovakia, and from Czechoslovakia to Romania. And suddenly, within three months, the whole of this area, in the grip of this monolithic darkness, for some 50 years or so, Suddenly it is all free, so that tonight you can have an open air in the streets of Warsaw, or an open air in the streets of Budapest, or you can have an open air in the streets of Prague. There is a committed Catholic, observant Catholic Christian Prime Minister of Poland. If you had said to me a year ago that this would be so that there would be a committed, observant, Catholic Christian who would be Prime Minister of Poland would have laughed in your face. I said, you must be nuts. It's impossible for such a thing to happen. If you had said to me that the whole Polish Houses of, House of Parliament would vote with one abstention, unanimously but for one abstention, to re replace the crown over the national emblem of the eagle on the national flag, I would have laughed at you. It's been ridiculous. This thing's been Marxist for years. You, you, can't, you can't replace a crown. But it's happened. If you had told me that the Hungarian Communist Party would vote unanimously to dissolve itself, I would have laughed. But it happened. It is the most unbelievable thing that has happened in Eastern Europe. A born-again believer... Vraclav Havel is now president of Czechoslovakia. It is unbelievable. I mean, I come from a country where these countries have been our pain in the neck for the last 50 years. I won't mention my country by name, but some of you can guess. And I mean, all this problem we've had with these countries, and now we have direct flights to all these capitals, and they are the kindest and most pleasant of all the countries. Instead of being alienated, they're the ones that are trying to come to us. The first state visit the Vraclav Havel made was to my country. I won't mention it by name. Isn't that unbelievable? Who would have believed it?
it. And then, and then, and then take the Kremlin. Who would have ever thought that after 72 years of this demonic power which has come throughout the world and wherever it's come has brought suffering and bloodshed and death, that, the, that in that Kremlin this year would have been rung in by the bells of the Kremlin that have never been allowed to ring because of their Christian association. Think of that. Or that the Russian Orthodox Christmas Eve service on January the 6th should have been televised to the whole Russian uh, Federation in Russia. Can you believe it? I mean, we, we, it's unbelievable. Now we suddenly find that the Ukraine has declared that its law must take precedence over Soviet law. We find the Russian Federation, the biggest republic in the Soviet Union, has said that its law must take precedence over Soviet law. And now, yesterday, the Belorussia has likewise gone on record, voted unanimously in its parliament, its law must now take... They want to have their own foreign uh, department and service, and they want to have their own standing army. This is unbelievable. I mean, you take Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Their national flags and national emblems have been banned for, for some 50 or more years, um, ever since Stalin moved into those three little Baltic countries. And in the last year, their national flag has been flying on every state building in their countries for the last year. It's unbelievable. If you said to me, I wish I'd known it last year when I was with you, I would have made so much of it. Um, uh, I mean, but I didn't. I mean, I, I was as much surprised. I believed myself that, uh, that there was coming a day when Russia would be free. But uh, I didn't think it would happen so suddenly. I thought it would happen gradually over a period of time. But for the whole thing to happen with such suddenness and such rapidity has taken our breath away. I mean, take one other symbol, the Berlin Wall. I mean, we have lived in the shadow of that Berlin Wall for all of the years, since 1961, and that Berlin Wall dividing that great city of Berlin into two, into two impenetrable halves. That great Berlin Wall was the symbol of the Iron Curtain. I had friends when I was in Finland um, uh, last fall. I had friends who left us, went off by car, packed with Bibles in Russian and Estonian, packed with clothes and foodie, food for believers in Leningrad and in Estonia. They went on Thursday, they were going for a long weekend, uh, going through Leningrad, going into Estonia to Tallinn, and then back. And they were coming back on Tuesday. They went on Thursday, they came back on Tuesday. Whilst they were in the Soviet Union, of course, they heard nothing uh, at all. They went, the Berlin Wall was still in position as it had been since 1961, and when they came back on Tuesday, it had been breached and was coming down. And they heard everyone talking about the Berlin Wall. They thought they were living a dream. They thought, it can't be the Berlin Wall. It must be some other funny little wall somewhere that's fallen down. It can't be the Berlin Wall. Yes, it's the Berlin Wall. It's come down. They couldn't believe it, that it could happen so suddenly after all these years. Does, does it say something to you? I mean, it, it means that... Um, the whole of our world is changing before our eyes with astonishing rapidity. In um, 1992, 
the 12 nations of the European common market will um, um, do away, abolish all their national frontiers and all tariffs, import and export duties, and, and all customs will be destroyed, abolished. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. You must understand that a hundred and fifty years ago, or even more, there were those who believed that there would be a revival of what they called the Holy Roman Empire. And the Grattan Guinness, in a book called Light for the, Last, for the Latter Days, published in 1860, amongst other things, said that 1917 would be an enormously important and significant day for the Jewish people. And he said that, um, that uh, there would be a revival of the Holy Roman Empire and a lot of other things. Now, people get stuck on the Ten, the Ten Kingdoms, you see. But putting that aside for one moment, think. First you have the Roman Empire. It covered the whole of the Mediterranean area, part of the Middle East, and a lot of Europe. It was centered in Rome. Then when it fell, the Holy Roman Empire came in its place, in a much smaller area, but also centered in Rome. Every king, every lord, Every duke and the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was subject to the Pope who was called King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the Vatican. When the Holy Roman Empire disappeared, the whole of Europe became independent states, sovereign independent states, full of jealousy, full of rivalry, and war after war after war, two of them world wars, came out of that area upon the whole world. We think of the Franco-Prussian War with all its terrible consequences. We think of the Napoleonic Wars with all their ravaging of Europe all the way to Russia. And then we think of the First World War and the Second World War. All these wars fought over jealousies and rivalries between the different powers in Europe. And now suddenly we are the witnesses of 12 states coming together for the first time in a union in which they're abolishing all frontiers and all the need of passports to go over their different uh, areas. They're going to become like your state lines. And, um, and we're seeing the most amazing, unbelievable thing happening before our very eyes. Austria has applied for membership. It would not surprise, that will make 13. Um, I would not be at all surprised if Hungary and uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland are not in the end included. And then here is the most amazing thing of all. Every one of these member states has had to sign the Treaty of Rome. So once again, we find in the very same area an enormous block of nations arising which is going to be the most powerful, influential and wealthy block in the world. Now we are the witnesses of this. Is it fanciful? Are we being crazy? Or are we actually seeing something happen before our very eyes that has enormous significance for the last phase of world history? And if that is so, 
Where are the companies of believers who can war the warfare of the service? Where are there those who can pray through the purposes of God for the nations and the purpose of God for his covenant people, his own? I mean, we need, we need to rise to this challenge. I said last night that we are nearer to a one world government than we've ever been before. And um, whilst I don't want, I won't be saying anything more about this tomorrow, all I would like to say is this. I honestly believe that in this next decade, we are going to see the most significant and enormous steps forward to, to a world government. The reason is this. I believe that this huge block in, um, in uh, um, Europe... Um, is not too fond of the United States. And um, I believe that they have scores to settle with the United States. United States. And it, there's, a, in my estimation, an enormous likelihood of a trade war. If Japan were also to join them, and I believe that is a very real possibility, then the North American continent could be isolated, of course, you have signed a trade agreement with Canada. If you could bring Mexico in, you could just manage to stay, um, I think, uh, um, uh, in an economically viable way. But what I cannot help but feel is this. Any president of the United States who's intelligent, and you happen to have a quite intelligent one at present, um, uh, any intelligent president of the United States will be undoubtedly tempted to forestall any such trade war with ideas of a world federation, a world government. Take something else. Just take the possibility of war. You take the Iran-Iraq war. Eight years of war. And in that time, Europe, from, who, whose greatest supply of oil has come from that area, and Japan, whose whole supply of oil has come from that area, these two areas of the world were shaken almost to their foundations by the eight-year war in, uh, in, in the Gulf area. Now, I believe that if there's any more possibility of that, we, there'll be a cry for many, many nations. We have got to have a world government. We've got to have a world commando force that can put down any such possibility of trouble. We're very near to it. But there's one other thing that I just want to sow into this, and that is the ecological. Recently, there was an ecological um, conference in Scandinavia, and um, it broke up in disarray. Why? First, because the United States and the United Kingdom refused to sign the agreement on acid rain to the anger of the Scandinavian countries and others that are suffering very greatly from it. Then the countries who have rainforests, Brazil, um, uh, Peru, Br Brazil, uh, Ecuador, and Indonesia, they refused to sign the agreement on stopping the destruction of the, the tropical rainforest upon which the largest amount of our oxygen supplies are dependent. 
Then Japan, she has recently rescinded the decision, but Japan refused to sign the agreement on factory fishing. That is the scooping up of everything on the seabed. Uh, uh, in which the, most of it that's taken up is thrown out dead, and only a little is kept for consumption. Um, you see, with the pollution of the seas, and the pollution of the air, and the destruction of the rainforest, and acid rain, we, the world needs a federal government like you have that can override state governments, do you understand, in the interests and well-being of the whole. And it seems to me that we only will have to have a few more ecological disasters and there'll come a cry that we've got to have a world government that can deal with world problems on a worldwide scale. Now that's where we are. It is unbelievable. It comes as a terrible and almost sickening shock to many Christians to know that what they've believed for years might actually be happening. <laughs> because we all believe these things. I mean, ever since I became, became a believer, I've heard these things from the moment I was saved. That one day this and this and this would happen. But I mean, somehow in my mind, I never thought I'd see it. I mean, I always thought, well, it'll always be another century away or another two centuries away. And here we are on the very brink of the possibilities. You see, I often say to people, I always say to people this. I know it's hard, but put yourself into the shoes of Mr. Bush for a moment. How would you sleep? I mean, would you think when you go to bed, here is a historic opportunity for saving the world from destruction, for, for saving the world from war, from saving the world from an economic war, trade war, with terribly horrifying results for the living standards of so many. Is this an opportunity we should grasp by suggesting a world government? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I think that if I didn't know the Lord and I was the president, I would say yes. That's the only way. So, that's where we are. And that's why this matter of spiritual warfare is so tremendously Im important. How interesting that little prophecy I quoted last night from Isaiah chapter uh, 21. Um, Watchman... What hour of the night? Watchman, what hour of the night? The morning comes, the watchman said, and the night also. Inquire ye, inquire ye, turn ye, and come. I think that's a very interesting little prophecy. First of all, we want to get our eyes on the morning, not the night. We have a morning to look forward to, not a night. We have the day of the Lord to look forward to, not the night uh, uh, that we have to endure. Thank God for that. But I like the word inquire ye. You see, so few believers have an understanding of the times in which we live. So few believers will inquire of the Lord in the light of his word as to what really is happening. Get an understanding. And then we need to turn. We're, a lot of us are involved in the wrong things. Our priorities are not right. We've got all our priorities wrong. We're often looking in the wrong direction. Bound 
lined up with the wrong priorities. We need to turn and get our priorities right and move in the direction that the Lord wants us to move. Now, let's get back to this matter of spiritual warfare. That's the background to the whole thing. Now, first, the first thing I want to say tonight about spiritual warfare is this. Unless you and I have an essential revelation as to the spiritual nature of this world, we will never see the point of prayer warfare. You know, there's a kind of idea in Christian circles. Now, forgive me, you godly old sisters, but um, uh, let me just uh, get this over uh, to everyone. There's an idea in Christian circles that the prayer is left for old ladies. You know that really prayer is not a thing that young fellows get into. I mean, that would be abnormal to see a young fellow with a virile young man sort of full of, of life getting into prayer warfare. That's ridiculous. Because we've got an idea that somehow or other prayer warfare is not quite normal. You've got to be a mystic for a start. And you've got to have your head in the clouds, secondly. And you've got to be sort of um, um, a little weird. Well, let's put it this way, a little eccentric. And then you can shut yourself up for hours in prayer. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? But actually... We are all called to prayer warfare. And until the men respond to the call, the women can never fully come into their own. Because in prayer warfare, you've got to have men in the forefront as well. This is so important. I'm not saying that the sisters can't pray. Please don't get me wrong on this. But there is a need for all of us to be in this thing together, young and old, men and women. Now, why do so few people feel any call to prayer? Why do they not feel that prayer is so essential? Because they see this world as basically a world of flesh and blood. And they see it as all to do with time and sense. That, that's this world. They don't understand that the most essential things in this world are what we cannot see. Yeah. All the things we cannot see with these eyes, feel with these hands, hear with these ears, those are the things that are the most important. And that's why we have this here in the Ephesian letter. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rules of this darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in heavenly places. Now, what are these principalities? You can't see them. You can't touch them with these hands. You can't hear them with these ears. You can hear a Mao Zedong. You can hear a Stalin. You can hear a Lenin. But you can stop there at Lenin and you can stop at Mao Zedong. You can hear an Ayatollah Khomeini and stop at Ayatollah Khomeini. You can hear a Colonel Gaddafi and stop at Colonel Gaddafi. You can, you can come up against the New Age movement and stop at the New Age 
strange movement because you think it's just flesh and blood. It's just some strange, weird, new cult. But when we realize that this world is an essentially spiritual world, then we realize that behind Islam is a principality. Behind Marxism is a principality, a spirit, a spiritual power, not just an it, but a person, an angelic force with intelligence, not some animal kind of uh, uh, power uh, that can be frightened off with a lot of noise, um, but um, uh, a, a highly intelligent, created, fallen being. World rulers of this present darkness. Think about it for a moment. That means that humanism behind it is a principality, is a world ruler of this darkness. Behind Satanism, obviously, there is such a power. I could go on and on in all kinds of ways describing different things, but what I'm trying to say is this. Only when God touches the eyes of our hearts and opens them, and for the first time we see through flesh and blood to what lies behind, do we become intercessors. Because the moment you and I understand that this world is a spiritual world, only then do we see that the only way to influence it is by spiritual means. Therefore, when a people get together and begin to realize, here we have a youth work, there's no breakthrough. It's as hard as nails. The young people come, the young people go, but nothing happens, nothing gets into them. They don't come on fire. They don't come to, to the Lord in the way that they're filled and anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so we go on and then we begin to think, how can we, what can we do with the young people? Oh, well, okay, we'll have table tennis. Or we'll have um, a table, uh, or we'll have uh, tennis parties. Or we'll have swimming parties. Do you understand what I mean? Well, thank God we keep the young people, but we keep them at that level. Having started it, we have to keep them at that level. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have swimming parties or, or tennis or, or croquet or anything else you want, um, but um, golf or whatever you want. But the fact is, if only there were people who could get behind the scenes and shake the principalities that are holding down on that youth work and stopping a breakthrough. It's the same with children. You can teach and teach and teach children. Nothing goes in. I was in a Sunday school for two years, and in that time, I managed not to learn one single thing. I, I came out of it, I didn't even know the Lord's Prayer. Of course, I had never read the Bible. So, I mean, I went in there, I was caught into this thing. I had to go because my sister wanted to go. And my mother said, well, you've got to take her, you see. So I took my sister along to this thing, but I never learned a single thing. It went in this year and out that year. I thank God for one or two people who'd spotted this big-eyed, dark-haired boy and his even bigger-eyed, dark-haired sister and prayed for us that God would break through and save us. And in the end, he did in the most remarkable way. You see, that's prayer, prayer warfare. 
Sometimes there's a spirit of division in a company, and it just rumbles on and on and on and on. And it's just faction and division and contentiousness and party, a kind of party spirit. And we all think, oh, so-and-so's the problem here, so-and-so's the problem, the other one, this, that, and the other, until suddenly we begin to realize this is a spiritual thing. There is an enemy at work here, and he is seeking to destroy this whole work. And if we go on, we can preach, and we can preach till we're blue in the face, and we can have all our meetings and sing our songs, but that spirit, that party spirit, will go on and on until it has destroyed the whole work and testimony. Because there are no folks who learn how to pray through, how to identify what is destroying the work and how, as it were, to execute it in the name of the Lord. This is spiritual warfare. One of my friends once had a great evangelistic crusade in Finland, and he was a very gifted evangelist. And um, no, none of those great thrills and fancies. I mean, this was a real gift of evangelism. And, uh, you know, they went through the first three days and not a soul got saved and the heavens were like brass and they had the choir and they had the singers and they had the preaching of the word and it was all absolutely right and no one got saved and suddenly it occurred to him on the fourth night he said to his interpreter, let's get behind the platform and fall on our knees and ask God to be merciful to us. And these two got on their knees. I know both of them. One of them's now with the Lord. They got on their knees behind that platform and as they prayed out of their heart, it wasn't a head prayer, it was a heart prayer, pleading with God for these thousands of people filling this great sports stadium, yet there was a heaviness, it was like brass. They said, Lord, you must do something. You must do it. And the Lord said into his heart, there is a spirit that has come in and has said, thus far and no further. And in that moment, these two shared it with one another, and they said, we can, in the name of the Lord, break the power of this spirit. They identified that power in that evangelistic coming, and they dragged it, as it were, out, just the two of them, in the open, and they slew it in the name of the Lord. And that night, thousands of people were saved. And every night it went through, and a huge thing that affected the whole of that great town in Finland. Then this man became uh, obviously an intercessor. Now he learned the biggest lesson he used to say of his life. He suddenly discovered you can preach and preach and preach and perspire and perspire and perspire and work your hands, your fingers as it were to the bone and nothing happens. But when two people get on their knees and seek the Lord and the Lord begins to reveal something to them and then because they were responsible for that time. Remember, this, this wasn't just any Tom, Dick, and Harry. These two brothers were responsible for this time. They had authority before God to deal with that thing, and they dealt with it in the name of the Lord, and the thing broke. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain that it was the same people, the same choir, the same singers, the same preacher, the same interpreter? Everything was there, even the same collection. Everything was there the night before, and the next night they had the same thing that first, the, the night before, not a thing. And then that night, a breakthrough. And the next night, and the next night, until thousands and thousands had found the Lord. Is it thankful to say that few minutes of prayer 
changed the whole situation. It wasn't just sentimental prayer. It was war. It was spiritual warfare. Now, my dear friends, what I'm just trying to say is very simple. <laughs> Here it is in Ephesians, but we all look upon it as Grimm's fairy tale. He would have said, oh, don't be so I mean, the Apostle Paul, I mean, he, that was his culture, you know. I mean, that's 2,000 years ago. I mean, that was his culture. It's all a fairy story. I mean, all those guys belonged to hobgoblins and, and trolls and all that kind of thing. I mean, uh, we don't have those kind of things today in this marvelous modern age in which we live, don't we? Really? It is to our own destruction if we don't see that we have the same powers at work even more than 2,000 years ago, speeding up all their activity because they know their time is short. Therefore, you and I have to learn very simply this lesson. And you see, look at that other scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we read together, 3 or 4. Though we walk in the flesh, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty through God to the casting down of strongholds, casting down imagination and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to obedience to Christ. Now, isn't that interesting? What are these strongholds that are being cast down? What are these weapons? Not fleshly weapons. What are these weapons of our warfare? Mighty through God or mighty in the presence of God. In other words, they only operate in the actual presence of the Lord. You can't just take these weapons as a technique, as a methodology and just use them. You can only use them in the power of the Lord's presence. He has to be directing you. He has to be filling you. He has to be, as it were... Inspiring you, do you understand? Covering you. No one is ever going to get involved in prayer until they see this, what I'm talking about. Never. And it is because we don't see these dangers, these spiritual forces, that every work in the history of the church has in the end institutionalized formalized, crystallized, and died. And we are no exception. It will happen to us unless we learn this very simple lesson. I always say to people, do you remember that amazing story of that Hebrew prophet, Elisha? Do you remember how uh, 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 the poor king of Syria there is nothing new under the sun. The poor king of Syria got so upset that every time he laid an ambush for the Israeli army, somehow or other they found out and they destroyed his commandos. And then he called his whole cabinet together and he said, now I'm not going to let one of you out of this room. I want you to own up. There's someone here who's been all oh, they all said, Sir, Your Majesty, don't you know there is a prophet in Israel? His name is Elisha. The king of thought his palace was bugged. 
because it seemed that whatever he discussed with the commander-in-chief or whoever else, he got back to Israel. And so he said, uh, who is this prophet? Elisha. And what? How, how, how does he come into the picture? Well, he said, everything you say in your bedroom, he hears by the Spirit of God. Oh, said the king. <laughs> well, we'll put an end to that. So he sent down his most elite, elite crack troops to the place called Dothan, and there he would surround him and take him and bring him to me. And we'll see what kind of power this man has. So they came down by night, these crack troops, and they laid a siege right round the hill where poor Elisha was fast asleep in bed. Now his servant was a young man, and he got up early in the morning, as all good servants should, to make his breakfast. And he got up and went down, and he was cooking whatever he had. It wouldn't have been ham or bacon. Uh, but uh, he was cooking this breakfast for him in the thing and got the coffee or the tea on or whatever it was. And suddenly he looked out the window and he saw the movement. And then he, he looked more carefully and he said, Syrians! My goodness, he said. There's a unit of Syrians. Then he went quietly to the other window, looked out, more Syrians! Went across to the other window and more Syrians! Oh, he said, this is terrible. Went to another window and said, we're surrounded. He said, oh, dear, we're surrounded. Why have we been asleep? The Syrians had surrounded us. So he rushed to the old prophet and shook him and said, sir, we're finished. We're surrounded by the Syrians. Now, you know, Elisha could have said, my dear man, sit down. I'm going to give you a heavy word on spiritual warfare. <laughs> he could have said, now, don't you understand that the powers in heaven are much more powerful than the king of Syria? And he could have gone through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and a few other things, you know, and really battered the poor man into the ground. It wouldn't have done anything for him at all. He prayed the shortest prayer in Scripture. Lord, open his eyes. That is such a short prayer. Straight from the heart and to the point. Lord, open his eyes. And in that moment, the Spirit of the Lord opened the servant of Elisha's eyes. And suddenly he saw the whole mountainside filled with the hosts or armies of the Lord. They were more than the Syrians. Now, isn't that amazing? Now, do you think they were there before? You think that perhaps the opening of Elisha's servant's eyes changed the situation? Not at all. Those armies of heaven were already in position. Elisha's servant just couldn't see them. Now, that's what happens with so many of us. We just don't see. We do not see see the spiritual forces. We neither see the Spirit of the Lord at work, nor do we see the spiritual powers of darkness. But if our eyes were to be opened, then suddenly we understand this is the Lord's battle. We cannot fail in this battle. This is the Lord's battle. You know the end of the story, don't you? Elisha just said, come on. He said to his servant, we'll, we'll pray. 
And then he said, Lord, blind them all. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, he'd asked for his servant's eyes to be opened. Now he asked for the Syrian units to be blinded. And they were all blind. And he said, now go out and just take them all and rope them together. And we'll take them down to the king of Israel. I mean, it's the most amazing story. You know, I mean... You know, think, think for a moment. I know it's, it has its amusing side, but think for a moment. Don't you think we get into situations that we make far more complicated by our intelligence? We say, oh, look what's happening in the world. Look what's happening in the fellowship. Lord, and then we, our minds get to work and we weigh this up and then it goes down on this side and we put something in there and it goes up again and then we put something on there and it goes down and this goes up. And so we get more and more, com- how should we deal with it? What should we do? And we get more and more into a mess and the thing grows more and more. We don't know how to deal with it. We get depressed and then all those under weather. Then we think, oh dear, what is happening here? I don't know. Why isn't the Lord around? Why doesn't he deal with it? A few words of prayer and the whole situation is changed. That is what I mean by the essential revelation that is required. Now I'd like to go on to a second thing. I won't, perhaps we'll stop after this. I'll see. (laughs) The divine goal in this battle. What is the divine goal in this battle? It's good in a war or a battle to know what is the Lord's end. What is the Lord's goal? Now please listen very carefully. Because this is so simple, you're going to miss it if you don't listen very carefully. The divine goal in this war is to win it. (laughs) It's so simple really, isn't it? It doesn't require too much intelligence, so it should suit most of us. I mean, uh, I mean, really, uh, the fact of the matter is, all God's aim in this whole war is that it should be won. Now, I want to let you into another secret. The greatest problem in the Lord getting to his end in this war is not the demons and not the spiritual forces, the principalities, the powers, or the world rulers of darkness, or the hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenly places, I'll tell you immediately who it is. It's you and me. We are unbelievable. Normally we spend our time shooting in the wrong direction. Very often we spend our time shooting at one another. I mean, we we are We are the Lord's biggest problem. I've often wondered why the Lord saved us. Because he has, as it were with us, saved as many problems as there are believers. Now the Lord's goal in this whole war is to win it. Now let me say something else. Please listen to this very carefully. The Lord Jesus has already won this battle and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, this I know is hard for some to, to really grasp, but actually this battle is won. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus said, the prince of this world comes? 
And then he said, now is the prince of this world cast out? Well, we sometimes think, cast out? He's cast out? What kind of casting out is this? We see the Kremlin. We see Islam. We see a thousand and one other things, humanism, and I don't know what else. We have all the problems we have in our fellowship. And all the men we say, where is this enemy cast out? But the Lord Jesus is not actually fighting. He's seated. He has won. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this is the secret. Let's just look at uh, a scripture or two. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15. Last part of verse 14. He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Having despoiled the principalities and the powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And I love this word, um, in the Greek here, which is really in an old version, Conobers, anyone who knows it, is translated like this. He stripped principalities and powers naked, making a show of them openly, triumphing over them through his cross. Now this is a picture of the triumphant hero returning to Rome in the Roman Empire days. And behind his chariot came all the kings and lords that he had taken battle. They were all stripped naked. <coughs> and this was the picture Paul was using. He saw the Lord Jesus as the absolute victor with all those principalities and powers chained, as it were, to his, to his chariot. Stripped naked. They were finished. Look again at Hebrews. The Hebrew letter, chapter 2. Verse 14, last part of that verse. For through death he might bring to naught him that has the power of death, even the devil. And might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now isn't this a marvelous word? I love it. Through death he brought to naught him that has the power of death. In other words, uh, the Lord Jesus has zeroed the work of Satan. He has brought it to nothing. He has made it absolutely as naught. Now, naught is naught. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many times you multiply naught, it ends in naught. And um, uh, the Lord Jesus through death has brought to naught. The one who has the power of death. What a tremendous thing. This is Jesus has won this victory. Um, well, I, I could go on and on here. I think of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool. Your footstool. Can you think of anything? In the New Testament, that messianic psalm is taken up and we're told that the Lord Jesus is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus when he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, let's get this clear again. God's goal in this war is to win it. 
He had, the Lord Jesus has already won the war and sat down. Now, listen carefully. It is our job to declare that absolute victory of the Lord Jesus and to realize it in earthly situations. But we can't do it unless we see it. <laughs> but once we've seen it with the eyes of our heart, then it's not just saying, Lord, be victor, Lord, be victor, Lord, be victor. It's a step further. That's prayer. But spiritual warfare is when we move in and say the Lord is the victor, is the victor in this situation. We can name it. We can actually name the specific situation, the relationship, the problem, whatever it is. And we can say, over this problem, Jesus is Lord. Now, that's a declaration. That's a proclamation. Actually, though you did not realize it, every time you have the Lord's table, it is such a declaration. You are declaring to all the invisible powers, Jesus has won the victory. That's why Satan hates the Lord's table. We could go on and say a lot more. Baptism is exactly the same. It's a declaration that Jesus has won the victory. He's put away one whole old creation and has brought into being a new creation. Put away an old man, brought into being a new man. Isn't that wonderful? It's a test of why the enemy hates baptism. So you see, I'm just trying to get this over to you. Oh, this is so, so tremendous. Now, do you begin to understand why Ephesians says that, and he has made him head, listen, I use this so often, he has made Jesus head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. Who's... Now, you could say, don't be silly. He's not head over all things. You can't say, if we were living under the Kremlin's rule, that he's head over the Kremlin. Oh, yes, he is. When the Lord says, your time is finished, the Kremlin will disappear. When the Lord says that Marxism in China has finished, it will be finished. And when the Lord speaks another word, and when the Lord finally speaks the word concerning the Antichrist, he will slay him with the breath of his mouth. That is the absolute victory of the Lord Jesus. And if you and I could only understand that, well now, listen, let me quote it in full. And he has placed, listen, he has placed all things in subjection under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now, where is the body? His head, his feet. <laughs> where is the body? In between. Isn't it? Where are you? All things under his feet, given to be head over all things to the church. We could say it this way, which is in him. Now do you begin to understand? Now, let's see it another way. I don't know if this is coming home to you, but if it does with the force of revelation, then all my time here will be worthwhile. Um, uh, go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Now finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Therefore put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to 
Stand. Stand. Isn't that interesting? Not fight. Stand. Not go forward. Stand. Stand against what? The wiles of the devil, the strategies of the devil. Okay, the devices of the devil. Okay? Then go on a little further. That ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Stand therefore. Now, surely, this must have a message. Stand, withstand, stand, stand. Now, why doesn't it say, go forward? Doesn't. Why doesn't it say stand? Because, listen, he has placed all things in subjection under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So stand where? In him. And withstand in him. And stand, and having done all, stand. Don't leave your position in him. Don't leave that place of abiding in him. That's where the victory is. And in that position, declare the will of the Lord. Declare the word of the Lord. Be specific. Don't be general. When God gives you a word concerning a a specific situation, use it. Listen to this word again. And with all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer, praying at, at, at all seasons in the Spirit. Now, have you got something? Listen again. You are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we know that this book is author, authored by the Holy Spirit. I believe that with all my heart. I know that this is objective truth, even if I don't understand it all. It is objective truth. It is inspired. It is accurate. It is the authoritative Word of God. But you can't just... Please understand me. You can't just throw the Bible at the devil. Some Christians think that all they have to do is to find something and then hurl it at the enemy as if that will do something. My dear friend, the Holy Spirit has to take this book and has to make a passage or a promise or a statement live to you in connection with a particular situation until you know this is the word of the Lord. Do you see what I mean? How often I have seen people healed um, and others not healed. And in my experience, I have seen this, that those who have not been healed have often had a lot of emotion around them and a lot of noise and a lot of uh, hullabaloo going on, but they don't... But in every case where the Lord has sent forth his word, he healed them. And that's what it says in Psalm 107. He sent forth his word and healed them. When the Lord speaks an actual word to an actual person, that is a, it has power within it to fulfill the purpose of God in that life. 
No word of the Lord ever falls to the ground. No word of the Lord is void of power. Every word that goes forth out of his mouth will not return unto him void, but will accomplish that to which it has been sent. Therefore, you and I have got to get to know our Bibles. We have to memorize our Bibles. We have to study our Bibles because then the Holy Spirit has so much more material upon which uh, to play, as it were, so much more material to use. He can bring, as you're on your knees, into your heart a word that is here. You may not have read it for, for weeks, but into your memory, into your spirit comes that word of the Lord, and in that moment you know, this is the word. When you share it with others, they live as well. And now you have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Do you understand what I mean? It's so easy to think that we're just being emotional when we're facing a situation. Perhaps it's something we get all getting emotional about. It. But when the Lord gives his word and it's confirmed in fellowship, then we know we have the sword of the Spirit in this matter. Now, this is the only offensive weapon that is mentioned in Ephesians 6. Everything else is defensive. All the armor, the shield, but this sword of the Spirit is the short, um, Greek sword which was used for finishing off your enemy. When you tripped him up and got him down or saying then you polished him off. That's not very nice to talk about but you polished him off with this this sword. My dear friend if only we could learn how to fight this fight of faith. If we could only learn how to uh, to deal with these principalities and these powers and these world rulers of darkness and, and so on. If we learn how to deal with them, my beloved brothers and sisters, some of your family situations would change overnight. Some of the problems with your children would start to yield. Some of the problems in our fellowship would start to yield before the power of God. All kinds of things would happen. Our business situations, our family situations, our personal situations, our uh, uh, fellowship situations. Even, I must tell you, even sometimes national situations will yield before such prayer once God leads us in the right way. If we could learn this, I believe it would be one of the most amazing things. I, I remember years ago I told some of you this story. It's a most disgusting story. So those of you who are very godly and pious, you must shut your ears. But I remember we had a fellow in our fellowship who was an alcoholic, a terrible alcoholic. I remember him myself just after I was saved. He was the most terrible thing you'd ever set your eyes upon. You more or less had to lock every sister, young sister, away from him. That was the kind of fellow he was. Then he went off in the Air Force to the Gibraltar. This was in the time of the British uh, uh, heyday. And, um, and um, he got so depressed and his alcoholism got worse and... He was so fed up, he went and lay down on the track, the railway track, between Madrid and, uh, I can't remember what, uh, which place it was, but anyway, somewhere near, on that coast there. And um, he thought, I'm going to end it all. And he lay down on the track, knowing full well there was only one express a day. He didn't want the slow train. Um, so he lay down on the track, and it never came. The, the express never came. He lay there for an hour and a half in the sun waiting for the thing and it never came. 
And um, this, um, uh, there was a strike that day. He didn't know that, but he got up and he wandered back and across the little causeway into Gibraltar. And as he came in in deep depression, having tried to kill himself and having failed, he fell into the arms of an army scripture reader who led him to the Lord. And he was gloriously saved. This man then became part of the fellowship of, the, uh, of saints at Halford House and one of the most amazing contributors because all his contributions were unbelievably original. One day at the Lord's table, one day at the Lord's table he stood up. Now this man had been an alcoholic and I don't know what else and he was a great horse racer. He loved to put money on the horses. And he stood up at the Lord's table, and I hadn't, I didn't know what to do, because as I listened to him, I thought, I'd better stop him. And, you know, I, I think, and I said to Ron, who was there, don't you think we should stop him? And Ron said, well, give him a bit more time. So we waited for a while and let him go on, and he, this is what he said. He said, yesterday, he said, I went home. I'd gone out for a walk, he said, in the park. And I came back in, and he said... I saw my three boys with their eyes glued to the television. And he said, I didn't have to ask them what it was because I could hear the thunder of horses' hooves. And he said, against my own better judgment, I got drawn, he said, to the television screen. And there he said, I saw these horses coming round the bend. And he said, all my old love of horse racing came back. I watched them. He said, I said, that one's going to win. That one's going to win. And he said, they raced round and round. And he said, finally... The, um, uh, the commentator said, that we don't know which is one. We don't, we'll have to wait. The stewards of the course will have, play a photo finish, and they will see which of those horses has won. So they waited for a few minutes. And then came the official announcement. Such and such a horse has won. And then the commentator said, now those of you watching will have probably thought that horse didn't win because it is a longer horse than the other. And its tail was actually b behind the other. But he said, you see, its nose was over the finishing line. And because its nose was over the finishing line, its tail has won. <laughs> now all this was at the Lord's table. And then he said, and then the Lord said in my heart, Fred, Fred, when the head's nose has gone over the line, the last head in the tail has won. And he said, in a flash, I realized it. I'm like the last hair in the Lord's tail. He said, he's gone over the line and he's won. So I've won. And you know, it was like a kind of ripple went right through the whole company. Everyone got the picture. <laughs> now, of course, I shouldn't tell you stories like that. Or let me might lead you all astray. But the fact of the matter is that when the head has gone over the line, the tail has won. Now, you know, we may be 2,000 years behind our Lord's ascension. We may be truly the tail, right in the very last days of the last part of the age. But we've won because the head has already sat down. And we are the body 
of our Lord Jesus. So we have one. Now, if this could sink into us, we would begin to understand that some of the situations we face, we need to inquire of the Lord. We can't just rush in. See, this is what happens. As soon as you get into um, a Pentecostal charismatic meeting, forgive me, I mean, I've got the greatest love for the charismatics and the Pentecostals, but as soon as we get into a Pentecostal charismatic, you haven't got to go a few minutes and someone's on there and they're on their heels sort of binding the enemy. And I often feel that there's a kind of cackle from hell, as if Satan said, <laughs> oh dear, you think you bound me. Now, if only when these people say, I bind you in the name of the Lord, the enemy was bound. And there was a great breakthrough, I'd be thrilled. But it never happened. The heaviness is just as great. And and if you dare say this, and sometimes everyone comes to you afterwards and says, you, you've, put, you've put fear into people now. They're frightened to resist the devil. And yet we're told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. My dear friends, the whole point is this. You can't just jump into a battle and fire your gun in all directions. You have a commander-in-chief. And you have to be absolutely absolutely subject to him. If he says lie low, lie low. If he says keep your head down, keep your head down. If he says get your gun ready, get it ready. And if he says don't fire yet, don't fire yet. And then when he says fire, fire. And don't fire in the opposite direction. Fire when he tells you to fire. But it's all so sensible, isn't it, really? But in our prayer meetings, we are firing all over the place. People are... <coughs> bang, bang, bang. I mean, it, it reminds me of these sort of um, weddings we have in our area where everyone fires all over the place. Crackers are going off and guns and bullets are going everywhere. People are carried off in stretchers to the nearest clinic because in the joy of the wedding, we're shooting one another. I mean, it's unbelievable what we do. And so we do the, quite the same thing in our prayer meetings. We load up every gun and everybody shoots all over the place. And one or two take a pot shot at one another in the meantime. It's unbelievable what we do. And then we wonder, how is it that in this prayer meeting we've spent an hour in prayer and nothing seems to have happened? We don't seem to understand that we have a commander, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. He expects us to keep our eye on him. He expects us to listen for his command. That's why we need first to inquire of the Lord. Lord, what is your strategy? What is your explanation of this problem that we're facing? Give it to us. This is what a true word of knowledge is all about. When God reveals to us what are the facts of a situation. And a word of wisdom, a true word of wisdom, is when we are for the first time we know what to do with the facts. How to handle them. That's what it is. When real faith is manifested, for the first time in your heart comes a, a, a strange sense. The Lord is going to do this. You understand now what I'm trying to say? He gives you the word of the Lord and then with the word of the Lord we can touch a situation and, and something really happens to it. Well, now, my dear friends, I think that's really enough. I will end like this uh, tonight on this point. I believe, therefore, that when it comes to this kind of prayer, now there are other kinds of prayer, but when it comes to this aspect of prayer, it is a spiritual military operation.
You have to run it like that. It has to be operated like that. And it needs every one of us who's a soldier to be absolutely subject to our commander. Very simple. But we are such an ill-disciplined lot. We find it so difficult. We seem to have problems with seeing and problems with hearing and problems with moving. We have spiritual eye problems, spiritual hearing problems, and spiritual arthritis and spiritual rheumatism. It is quite unbelievable. That's where we need the Lord's healing. In all these areas so that we can move. We will say more tomorrow about some of the other practical things, but I want to end with yet another story that may bring it home. Some of you will have heard this, but I, I think it's the best way that I can bring home to you. You see, I was brought up in a company when I was first saved that, that just about what I've said, they really had zeal and fervency, and that is a good thing in prayer, and they did pray from the heart. And, uh, but it was all over the place. I mean, we shot our ammunition in every direction spiritually you can imagine. We had world tours. Someone conducted us on one of these world trips from country to country right around the world. Someone else would lump every single thing that had been mentioned in prayer in one long ten-minute prayer in which they exhausted every possibility. And uh, I mean, you know, it was uh, quite a mess. Then I went to Egypt. And when I was in Egypt on one occasion, I became ill, which I believe was the Lord. And in the recovering from it, the missionaries in Ismailia said, uh, you should go to Portside. And they said to me, in Portside there are two old missionaries. I'd already heard about them. And so they, these two dear missionaries gave me a lecture. Now they said, these missionaries are the godliest two women in the Middle East. And you mustn't shock them. You have to be very good, they said to me, because they will straighten you out the moment you open your mouth. So, this dear sister Susan Hamill, she said to me, such a dear saint of God, she said, now, I think, Lance, it would be good if you kept your mouth shut. <laughs> so I went to stay with these two amazing old ladies. They were both retired missionaries, but... They said they, missionaries don't retire. And uh, they had stay, stayed there. <clears throat> they, of course, were in association with Mr. Sparks. That was how I first came. And then I began to see a most amazing thing. The phone would ring, and I would hear the one I called Auntie Smith, Auntie Kathleen. She was on the phone, and she would say, yes. Where are you phoning from, Beryl? Beryl, oh, yes, yes, yes. Now, what is the situation? Just wait, I've got a pencil here and a pen. Put it down, she will start to... Yes, yes, the problem is what? Yes, yes. Well, she said, Alex and I will pray about it. And there would be another phone call, and it would be from Algiers. And it would be something else. And then I would hear... Um, they would have letters. And at the breakfast table, they would not completely discuss it, but I could gather from the way they were talking that there were certain things about somewhere in Aswan, Upper Egypt, or in Luxor, Luxor, or somewhere else. And I, I was just amazed. I listened to this all of it. On one occasion, there was this phone call, and I suddenly heard um, uh, Kathleen Smith say, Alex! Alex! Where? 
This was actually in a place called Aswan. And they said, did this and this and this and this and this. And they tried to explain. And they said, now we are going to go to the Lord and we're going to ask him what how he would have us pray. Well, these two got on their knees, and I got on my knees, and then I heard them say, begin to praise the Lord, and then they begin to ask the Lord. I heard them asking the Lord, Lord, how do we pray for this? And then I heard them rustling in their Bible. And these, these women were unbelievable. They were like walking Bibles. They knew the most obscure verses in Obadiah and Nahor. And I mean, suddenly they would get one of these verses in Obadiah, and she would say, well, look at this, Alex. I think this is the Lord's word. And she would quote it. And, and Alex would say, praise the Lord, that's it. And then the most, it was, well, I can only describe it. I was only a boy of 18. To me, it was like two people on a gun with their helmets on. And they were swinging this gun round. And you know, they began to fire it in the direction of the enemy. It was the most amazing thing. And then they would stop and one of them would say to the other, do you think we're through? And the other would say, not yet. And they would go, boom, on again. And then all of a sudden, they would both praise the Lord. You know, I learned more with those two old sisters than I had in years in any other prayer meeting. I'd already thought that it was a duty to go to the prayer meeting because I was in a company of believers that believed it was the priority. And the pastor used to say, you can go, you can go anywhere else in anything, but keep Monday evenings clear because that is the prayer meeting night. That is the most important meeting in the life of this uh, fellowship. I, but, I, you know, it still was ineffective. There in Portside, I learned that this world is a spiritual world. Now, I'm not saying that every single thing those two marvelous sisters uh, prayed for happened immediately. There were some things they'd prayed for for years that didn't. And do you know there are some things, they're both in the presence of the Lord now. Um, but there are some things that I have seen answered in prayers that they prayed in Portside, all those, what, 30 years ago or more, I'm seeing it today fulfilled in Israel. For they prayed very much for the different towns and uh, uh, cities of Israel. And you know, I, 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 I learned more from those two than anything else. What I learned was that this world is a spiritual world. And that if you will only put yourself under the leadership of the commander, then you can go into this battle and you can actually see things happen. May God help us to learn something of these lessons. Because I believe that it could transform so much in the life of any company of God's people. I travel all over the world, and one of my greatest joys is sometimes to be with servants of God in the front line, places like Borneo, places sometimes in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Thailand, where there's really you're up against occult forces, spirit forces. And you know, one of the most wonderful things is where you go and you find servants of God who've learned how to be together and how to pray things. May the Lord help us. I don't have to remind you that Margaret Barber spent a large portion of her life in prayer ministry with another sister. And out of it came that whole work with Brother Nee.
I don't have to tell you that old Miss Cowie in India, with another sister, spent a large portion of her life in prayer for India, and out of it came that work with Brother Bach Singh in the whole of India. This is not a fairy story. This is bringing us to the very heart of everything in the work of the Lord. And if you and I could understand it, we would hear again the words of the Apostle Paul, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus the Messiah. Shall we pray? Lord, we want to commit ourselves to you because we need you, Lord. We need the eyes of our hearts open so that for the first time we understand, we know these things. We don't just know about them. We know them. We know you. Lord, I can only pray that prayer of Elisha. Open the eyes of every one of my brothers and sisters in this place this evening. Open their eyes, Lord, to see that you are with us. Lord, we commit this to you in, pr in prayer with thanksgiving. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.